Hello and welcome to another episode of Guess That Record. I am your host, Jackson Reed. This is the show where we talk about music and try to figure out which album I pulled from my collection. Thanks to all our listeners out there for tuning in to another episode. We always appreciate the support. We have a super cool guest today. A native of my hometown of Calgary, Alberta, she's a songwriter and producer. Some of the artists that she's worked with include Nelly Furtado, Noah Cyrus, Roy Woods, and BTS. For the latter, she co-wrote their songs Butter and Permission to Dance, which both reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100. She's also the creator of the Green Room Talks podcast, which focuses on mental health awareness in the music industry. I'm super excited to welcome Jenna Andrews to guess that record. How are you doing, Jenna? I'm great. I'm, I was just uh, had a cold this week, so it's you know not always the the best time of the year because it's like the changing of seasons, and I've been traveling a lot. But other than that, I'm great. That's awesome. And where are we talking to you from today? I'm in Nashville. Oh, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe- Baby Cal, well, like a little bit reminds me of Calgary a little bit um, yeah. for, for U.S. places, right? It's kind of it's kind of similar in some ways. I, I totally know what you mean because I've I've been to Nashville. I actually performed in Nashville. That's why oh, I was no there to to uh, yeah play a show. So um, yeah, it's a really cool town. I enjoyed I enjoyed it there. So oh, I yeah. love that. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, anyways, yeah, I'm very excited to have you on the podcast today for a number of reasons. Uh, firstly, you're the first guest that we've had on the show that comes from the world of pop music. So I'm interested to speak with you for that reason. But most importantly, uh, you and I are both from Calgary. And I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, when when we got the pitch to have you on the podcast, I was like, so she's a super successful songwriter from Calgary. Yeah, we're we're having her on the show. Um, and, <laughs> and I'm a, uh, I'm a musician myself, so it's really inspiring to get to meet someone that's from Calgary who's, who's doing all these amazing things. So yeah, it's really great to have you here today. Well, thank you for having me. Um, it's, it's so cool to see Calgary, um, get on the map these days, especially with Tate McRae and all, you know, it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's nice to see people, um, recognizing Calgary. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and, and while we're on the subject of Calgary, I'd love to learn more about your upbringing here. So yeah, w- which part of town did you grow up in? I grew up in the Southwest. What about you? Uh, Southeast. Yeah. Oh, where, where, what area? Like, uh, Mackenzie Lake. So, oh, um, I, I love Mackenzie Lake. Yeah. Yeah. That's and, crazy. Uh, I know. And, and I read... Um, that you went to uh, EP Scarlet for high school. Is that correct? Yeah, I did. I did. Yeah. That's funny because like I've had so many family members that have gone to uh, to Scarlet. And um, uh, yeah, it was like pretty much everyone but my dad went there because they sort no. of grew up in that area. And then I think my cousins went there uh, recently as well. So I've had a lot of family through that school. Where did you go? I went to Beaverbrook, so not too far from Scarlet, but uh, yeah. Oh, cool. I went to, yeah, so I went to Scarlet, and then for junior high, I was Robert Warren and um, mm. Al- and Alboya. I went to Alboya right. for a year. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. And, um, you know, obviously, you're very busy and all over the place these days. So what's something that you miss about Calgary? I I think, like, I miss the the aspect of nature and just like 
the the feeling of home i guess you know there's something you know obviously it's it's it doesn't necessarily feel that way until you leave but there's a nostalgia whenever i go back and 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 as much as the winter sucks when you live there it's nice to go back when you don't live there because the snow is actually so i love it when you can just look out your window and it's just it's such a warm feeling like you know it gives you the like rom-com christmas vibes <laughs> right yeah for sure um and another thing I read about you that I got to know about, uh, did you go to Mount Royal for journalism? I did for a year. And then I studied, I, when I went to, um, I moved, uh, a year. So I did a year and then I moved to Vancouver to start working on music or whatever. And, um, the professor there let me do a couple years online. So I have like a year left or whatever, but I, I, I essentially finished three years, um, two online and then one in person, but yeah, I did it. It was cool. That's uh, yeah, another coincidence because I I went I also went to Mount Royal for journalism. Um, oh, and, no uh, way! Yeah, graduated in twenty twenty one. So uh, yeah, it's uh, when I saw that I just was like that. There, there's like a potentially a chance we had the same professors. I know <laughs> who who um who was like the head of the department. Oh man, when I was there. Um, well, uh, it might have been Brad Clark, I think. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that was who was the head of, of the, like the School of Communications or whatever when I was going there. Oh, okay. I don't remember. I'm trying to remember his name, too. I can't remember, but it was, um, it was such a great experience. And I, um, I did actually a lot of, um, I'm sure you did as well, but I did a lot of like internships um, around Calgary. So like... Um, at like global and at like um a bunch of the radio stations and things like that i was just trying to sort of get in where i fit in type vibes you know <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah um and uh now um moving into sort of your music uh career a little bit here what is the first song or the first album you remember hearing that made you take music seriously oh i well, my mom loves music. Like she's always, I don't, my parents aren't like, I don't come from a necessarily a music family, but they, my mom just like is such a music connoisseur. So from the age of like five, I, you know, they had every vinyl known to man. So it was just kind of like old school, like R&B jazz. So like Donny Hathaway, Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, things like that would always just be playing in our house. And and but really, I think in terms of like wanting to be an artist and feeling inspired, I, I think it was Mariah Carey and Whitney Houston for me. Awesome. Yeah. And um, when you decided to start playing music, uh, like, did you start on an instrument or was the goal sort of always to be a singer first? I think the goal was always to be a singer. I think, you know, as as a kid, you kind of don't understand the scope of everything that you can do in music which is something that i love to talk about now because i think you know there's there's so many options for musicians to be able to you know not have to be like oh if i don't make it as an artist then i don't make it kind of thing you know so i think I, it's if i hadn't known that back then maybe the options would have felt different but yes i wanted to i wanted to be an artist and i I started, I got this little keyboard when I was five or six and I just sang and taught myself how to play on it. 
And um, I really only started not to think I wanted to necessarily be a songwriter for other people, but I really started being interested in songwriting when I was about like 13 or 14. I started writing um, my own songs. Right. And so then you go to Scarlet, you go to Mount Royal, but then you made the decision to move to Vancouver to try and uh, have a career in music. What was it about Vancouver that drew you there? Well, I, well, first of all, I went to Mount Royal for journalism because I think in my, like for me, I had already done so much musical theater and, and music growing up in, in whatever school I was going to, I figured this, like having journalism, as you know, it's like, there's an aspect of it that doesn't like, obviously there's so much writing. So I feel like that was really, um, a part of it and also taught me a different side of the business so simultaneously i felt like that was a good thing to have under my belt but vancouver was a choice because um because i had met so i was opening for a lot of artists that were coming into calgary so basically i would talk to the promoters and say if i sold this many tickets could i open up for whatever artist was coming to town and so i was doing that while going to mount royal and actually scarlet too and there was one particular promoter that had introduced me to a producer in vancouver and um when that opportunity presented itself i just thought i would take it and be like um i'm going and also i forgot this part is that i think like two months before that happened i tried out for canadian idol which i don't really talk about a lot it's hilarious and i met this girl in line that I became friends with. And so I basically emailed her and was like, Hey, can I sleep on your couch if I move to Vancouver? And she said, yes. So I was like, all right, I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, and, and, uh, it was interesting to read because it's like how you got discovered, uh, is a very like mid two thousands way of being discovered because it was through a song you posted on uh, MySpace. Yeah. Uh, what was the, what was the story behind that? Um, well, okay. So when I went to Vancouver, I basically did a production deal and I recorded an EP. Um, but in that time I obviously had no money and I was just sort of struggling artist at that point and wanting it to, wanting to do it on my own, not sort of depend on my parents and things like that. So I had a waitress job. I worked at Earl's, which I'm, I'm sure, you know, cause you're a Calgarian, oh, yeah. um, yep. and you're a Canadian. So I worked at Earl's, but, um, so, but then sometimes I just like, would stay in my car um, and sleep by the water at night because it was so far. I had, the place I was living at was like an hour and a half outside of Vancouver. And it was, I just loved being by the water. Anyway, so I wrote this song one year for my parents, funny enough, for Christmas. And because um, I was like, oh, I can't really afford a, a nice gift. So this will be, this should suffice. And um, ended up being like the favorite song on the EP. So I ended up posting that. And um, that's how, like, to be to be honest, I think that's probably how like most of the people then found me. I had a bunch of managers, a bunch of labels reach out. And um, yeah, that was kind of not the beginning because I had already started, but sort of the beginning into like, you know, the the real game, I guess you yeah. call it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you eventually then signed a, a record deal with uh, Island Def Jam. And uh, in 2012, you released uh, like your first uh uh, like major label EP called uh, Kiss and Run. And I had to listen to it and it felt, it felt like the songs were quite Adele uh, sounding, I, I thought. But uh, yeah, how was that EP put together? Well, it depends on what songs you listen to. I think that there's a song on there called Weapon that I could see where you would find the Adele reference. I think a lot of it too is um, 
inspired by a lot of, you know, again, jazz R&B influences. That was very much the direction I was going in. So whether it be like, um, I love like Portishead and Massive Attack. And like when it came to my music, like there's, there's a lot of those influences in that particular EP. Um, but, but yeah, I think that was the last EP that I released while being on Def Jam. And I ended up leaving the label in either, I, two, I think it was 2013. So that was the, like, the last thing. And I had previously released a single, I think it was in 2010 called Tumbling Down, but it was weird. I was signed there for like seven years, but only put out one single and one EP. It was like totally different time in music. You know, now mm-hmm. it's like, you, you, if you don't put out a song every month, then you're like forgotten about yeah. <laughs> as an artist. So it's weird, you know? Yeah. And um, yeah, so I guess not too long, like after that EP and and everything, you you made the decision to kind of switch to your current career path of of like songwriting. Uh, what was like what what was the moment that made you realize you 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 had to make that change? I guess. Well, it was never. I'm never like that. It's never really like you have to do anything. Like even for me, going to journalism, it's like to some extent, it's like you know, you never have enough tools in your belt. It's not a backup plan per se, right? It's it's just kind of like some life just throws these things at you and you just kind of go with them. That's how I feel, you know? And I, I, I think the only thing that I will say is when I left the label because my experience had been, you know, not being able to put out so much music that I had created, I'd had like 300 plus songs and I put out eight of them, right? So it felt in that sense, very confining and, and, and I wanted to be able to, you know, be able to have people hear the music I was writing. So, so a Canadian friends of mine, Magic Jordan, they were just starting their careers. And I had got the call to be, you know, to ask to executive producer be around to help develop them. And that was just like a fun thing. I was like, oh, I've never done this before. I've never written for other people. And so I, um, I just decided to do that. And that was one of the first songwriting things I'd ever done and just kind of fell in love with it. I guess that was really the beginning of it. So it was never a conscious decision. I think it just sort of happened. Yeah, of course. And so I am kind of curious, like when you sort of get the job uh, to write for someone, is it like, do you have to like pitch to like a manager or an A&R person or uh, especially since you're now like more established, is it kind of less formal uh, for you to sort of get those gigs? Yeah, I think a lot of it is, I mean, less formal for sure. I mean, in terms of the pitch, the pitch game is tough. I mean, it's become tougher now because so many artists write their own music, um, especially with TikTok and stuff like that. It's not really the same as it once was in terms of like, you know, I think at one point, like the majority of songs being cut were pitch songs. Now it's like you either write the song with the artist. And if you do pitch a song that they don't write, it's like 10% of people, artists will take them or maybe Mm -hmm. 20%. I mean, those aren't, I mean, obviously that's not the exact percentage, but I mean, to, to be fair, like, it's just, it's not, it's, and if they do take an outside song, usually if they like it, they'll ask to participate in, participate in it to some extent, Um, which I love by the way, but it's, it's, yeah, I think for, for me, um, rather than going through labels and like managers and executives, as much it's nice to find your like artists like you know i guess like 
Rolodex, let's call it, and just be able to, I send it a lot to the artists themselves, right? I think that mm -hmm. it just feels very much more pure and authentic that way. But it's case by case. I mean, it really depends on what project it is. I mean, if it's an artist that I've never written with before, then yeah, I guess. But the music industry becomes so much smaller as you're in it for longer, if that makes sense. So everyone sort of know it's like this, it's like actual high school. <laughs> yeah. So for the most part, if you don't know the person, you you know somebody that knows them and they know of you. So yes, it makes it a lot more less like, you know, like professional seeming. If that's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, you know, being a songwriter myself, I I think the thing I find interesting about uh about songwriting is that there's just there's no correct way to do it it sort of seems like everyone has their own process so yeah like uh what's your process of writing a song my process of writing a song is like literally always sort of different i like to take it from a more like authentic standpoint in terms of like the the i mean the connection between like what you're going through and what it ends up being like for me like I started a podcast myself about mental health because I found so many times in sessions, there's so much vulnerability there. And I think that that's, you know, therapy in itself. So I, I think when I'm writing with an artist, it doesn't always have to be like a bad thing per se, but it's just like, a, especially if you're getting to know someone, there's such a, you break the ice by telling each other things that feel very like, raw you know like it just feels like something where it's like you speed date and you 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 feel like you've known them for a year after one session and then end mm -hmm. up you end up with a song that just feels like this like baby that you've created that you'll never forget that moment and i love that's one of my favorite things about songwriting so i think in that sense i i i would say that i just like to take it from a very like pure human to human getting to know each other state because that usually gives you the concept it's like within 20 30 minutes of conversation you're like oh shit that's what we're writing about but um but again it, it, it's always so different like we're writing for this netflix film right now and it's like you know it's obviously they have a brief and they want they want a certain thing so you follow that so it, it's case by case but in terms of my favorite um way of songwriting i would say it's it's definitely just like starting from the nitty-gritty and being able to really put realness yeah. into songs you know yeah yeah for sure um and, and this is something i'm kind of curious to get your thoughts on because uh i come from like a classic rock background and my favorite right. artist is is bruce springsteen <clears throat> and when you look at the credits of his albums you'll always see all songs written by bruce springsteen without any other writers involved and you know i feel like back then if there was like group songwriting a lot of the time it would strictly be duos like Lennon McCartney or Jagger Richards. But, you know, in today's musical landscape, it's not out of the question to sometimes see, you know, like six songwriters on one song. Why do you think it's become more of a thing to have uh, a lot more people involved in the songwriting process? I think like now music has just become differently competitive. I think like before you know, obviously people recorded all raw instruments and it was even recorded to tape and things like that. Now it's like, you know, everything's programmed. There's so much, there's so many sounds available on things like Splice. And, and I think that, um, I don't know, there's like a, there's like, like, I think record, the, this, the, the, um, the, I don't even want to say it's like the, com the competition of it, but I think it's important to be able to, um, 
you know, be innovative and those kind of things. And I think there's always so many new things coming out. You sort of have to like meet the minds in the middle, if that makes sense. Cause it's not just like a band going in and recording it. It's, it's different. Cause there's so much like MIDI and so much like, you know, um, it's not all like raw instruments, I think, you know, and in terms of mm -hmm. songwriting, I don't know how that, ha I, I guess like, that's an interesting question. I mean, people do ask that a lot. I, I really don't know how that, sort of happen but I think collaboration is so amazing and I love that that happened <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah um and uh uh it's you know it's also like sometimes you see it on like the production side of things as well where you know you back in the day of course it would usually just be one producer and now there's like you know a ton of producers on most albums um and uh continuing about that on on producing because uh, that's another thing that you uh, have been doing a lot more of uh, what I think it's it's also sort of like songwriting where there's no right or wrong way to approach uh, producing so uh, how did you get your start producing and then what's your process of working on a record in that capacity well for me production is is I started as an executive producer so I mean I really like again one of those things I sort of fell into and didn't realize how much I loved it but I, I as I started working like in a lot with particular artists so I as I was songwriting I started to find like artists that I would lock in with for like eight months to a year like the band Perry or an artist named Banks and um as I was going through that, I even Magic Jordan in the beginning, and and I just started to like meet people and really love the idea of development. And so there was an artist that I had met named Lennon Stella, actually from um, well, she's Canadian but lives in Nashville. Um, she was on the show Nashville. I met her, wrote with her and her sister, and I was like, wow, this is somebody who I like absolutely adore and like think she's incredible and wanted to be a part of developing and like you know really um, being in it with her to help develop her sound and like just being able to help create the whole picture, I think as a partnership and ended up signing her to records with Barry Weiss, which is crazy because Barry was actually the head of my label when I was signed to Island Def Jam, so small world, mm -hmm. but um, ended up consulting for him as an executive producer and um, ended up executive producing and a and Stella and then um, after Noah Cyrus as well. And I just, I, I think the executive production role is, you know, it's, you're not actually like programming sounds. I'm not doing any of that kind of thing, but it's, it's kind of understanding the scope of what you want to hear. And also like between you and the artist, you can come up with what, what sound you feel like it should be for the record, you know, and also just picking the, the songwriters. And I'd been doing it long enough to really, um, you know, understand who I thought would be good in the room with each of them, you know, so I would be able to like not only musically but personality wise so just putting in the right combinations of people to write for the albums was so fun so it's kind of like production like producing a movie right like you mm -hmm. you kind of put all the people in play and then also you know i vocal produce as well so that's another part of it where i love to make vocals sound like synths and like you know just like find the musicality within the voice and i think that really helps um that helps me in a lot of ways to see the vision for, for songs as well to, because a lot of times I think you hear a song and it, it's like 80% there and the extra 20% could be in the vocal production. Um, anyway, so with all that said, it's, I think that's how I really started being a producer per se was through executive producing and vocal production. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. And 
Um, you know, this is one thing that I think is, you know, really cool about what you're doing is the fact that you've been successful at all of this as a woman. And a couple episodes back on, on the podcast here, I interviewed Susan Rogers and she was Prince's engineer during the eighties. So she worked on purple rain sign of the times, like basically the biggest albums of his career. And then she went on to be a producer for like the bare naked ladies and, David Byrne from the Talking Heads, but it's crazy to think about her being a producer and an engineer back then, because like there were hardly any women in those jobs back in the day. And, you know, even right now, it's still quite rare to see women in those roles sort of like behind the desk, because I saw a statistic that like only 3% of producers are women and only 14% of songwriters are women. And I think things are improving for women in the music industry as a whole, because there are probably more successful female artists right now than at any other point in history. And the 3% of producers I'm sure is a much bigger number than it was even, you know, 10 or 20 years ago. But firstly, why has it been hard for women to get those kind of behind the scenes jobs besides gender power dynamics, because I'm sure that plays a huge role. And then what's being done to change that, to get more women songwriting and producing? I think um, it's, it, that's a, that is like always a little bit of a hard question to answer in the sense that like, I think that the majority of producers are men, right? So I, I think that that's just sort of been how, how it's been. And I'm not sure that girls, like, I think now, obviously it's like you said, it's totally different. Cause I think girls try it now. They go to school for it, things like that. But I don't think that like, it's been that much time where I think that girls really even thought to try that, if that makes sense. And I don't know where that started. Maybe that's like a, you know, it's just one of those societal rules that people follow. I'm I like, it's just, again, it's, it's a really weird thing, but I do, I think that what's really interesting to see now is like, you see all these girls going to school for it for production. And now you're seeing more girls come out and be really great producers. I mean, I have so many female friends that I think are great producers, like, you know, Alex Hope, I don't know. She's really amazing. Um, this girl, Pom Pom, she like Alyssa Vanderheim. She's in Nashville. Like there's, there's a bunch of female producers that are really getting hit songs now, which is so great to see, but I just don't know that like girls were even trying to be producers back then. And I think that producers sort of, you know, obviously the reason why there's so many men um, in the creative side is I think mostly there's so many producers that also songwrite, right? So like, that's why there's majority of men because all the girls just songwrite. Um, and again, again, I think it's something too that females, I think, especially as kids think that they, you know, their way into the industry is being an artist. And I, that's how kind of what your first question was to me, or like, Oh, did you ever think of doing anything else? I think that again, maybe it's the kind of thing where you think, Oh, well, this is the way that I get into music, but you didn't realize all the other things that you could do as, as a female trying to get into music. So it's definitely not like that anymore. I think it will, the number will continue to, you know, increase as time goes by. But in terms of, being a songwriter it's it is a the t it's it is a it's an interesting job because you know again it's 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 in terms of livelihood it's hard to sustain yourself without having hit songs because there's no other way to monetize your your efforts so it's it's definitely a crazy world because even if you think about it like 
all the other people, like including like the engineers or, you know, the mixers and all these things, like everyone's paid for their job in, except the songwriter. And so, I mean, it's an incredible job, but it's just maybe harder to sustain unless you have songs that are actually doing something, right? So. This episode of Guess That Record is brought to you by Marvel Marketing. Marvel Marketing is an award-winning digital marketing company headquartered in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, working with clients in different industries from all over North America, including Canada, the United States, and Mexico. Marvel Marketing services include website design and development, website maintenance, search engine optimization, public relations services, and social media management, amongst others. To find out more, visit marvelmarketing.ca. This episode of Guess That Record is brought to you by Guitar Works. One of Canada's top independent music stores for over 30 years, Guitar Works carries a huge selection of musical instruments from the biggest brands in music, including Gibson, Fender, Martin, Yamaha, and Paul Reed Smith. Visit any of their three Calgary locations or shop online at guitarworks.ca and join the Guitar Perks program to earn money back with every purchase. Guitar Works your total guitar store. This episode of Guess That Record is also brought to you by Recordland, home to the largest selection of music in Canada. Buy, sell, and trade tapes, CDs, and vinyl. Located in Calgary's Inglewood neighborhood on 9th Avenue Southeast, visit them in person or follow them on Instagram at Recordland Calgary. Now to uh, bring it back around to your career, I think like the last, you know, three or four years have probably been like the high point uh, for you so far. And it kind of got started when you co-wrote the song Super Lonely for Benet. And that song was interesting to read about because it didn't really find widespread success until it became popular on uh, TikTok. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was kind of crazy because we had written it in... Um, August 2019 and it came out I think in November and it wasn't even supposed to be a single or anything and like like you said it just that's what TikTok is great for right there's mm -hmm. there's um you know there's a bunch of positive and negatives about TikTok in my opinion but the positive is that you can just put out a song and and the fans will find it and you song that you would never necessarily think that could be your biggest hit will end up being your biggest hit and change your life so anyway um it ended up just being a very like light like lighthearted but also like had so much um i think i think it was like so interesting to see how it blew up during covid just because i think it really brought joy into something you know it was like she wrote it about a breakup and i think as much as it was fun and light it was also there was like some really like i don't know with her voice i just feel like you she made people feel good during a time you know and it became like I, you know, it became the pandemic song. So that was, mm -hmm. that was just an interesting time in history for me too, because obviously, you know, I, I believe that that song will always have a place in, in people's hearts during that time, you know? And I, I, I loved that being, you know, the first big hit of mine. Cause I just think, you know, it's just, it was such a crazy time in history. And also I just love her and it was just, it's so nice to enjoy the ride with people that you love. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, it's, uh, it's, uh, or actually, yeah, I was going to mention, I don't know if you know about this or not, but when I was looking up the song, I saw that, uh, Elton John was praising it. So that's pretty cool to say that Elton John has a song, uh, that you wrote that, uh, he's a fan of. 
Oh, I know. That was really cool. Yeah, I think he, um, I, I want to say, I don't know if he like went on stage with her or something like he, or he definitely, something happened with him, that, that and her during that time. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was cool. Of course. Yeah. And, um, you know, since Super Lonely is an example of a song that became popular through social media, I've seen some people say how, like, you know, that's what artists need to be focused on when they're writing music is like, you know, it has to be geared towards TikTok. Uh, so what I'm wondering is, do you think that, like, good music will find its way no matter what? Or do artists really need to be focused on going viral as, like, their, their first priority? I mean, I think music should be the first focus. I think that that's where it's gone really wrong over the last couple of years. I think TikTok and, and analytics and those type of things show labels what's, you know, what's working. So I think that it makes it easier to know if you put out a song, whether or not it will do numbers. But I think music is still, there's, there's a lack of like real artistry in the last couple of years because of TikTok. I think that, you know, you see so many one song hits and then people either don't know the artist's name or the artist can't have a hit after that. And it's like they don't have the chance to really develop a career. And I think that people miss that. I really do. I, I, I think that there is something about watching an artist really like grow and become something and like, like knowing them and feeling like you were in that journey with them is something that creates real fans and people that will go to your show. Whereas like mm -hmm. just being like, I love that song and like, not necessarily having the like putting two and two together. So I, I think that coming into this next era of where music is going, I think we're going to get, I think that eventually we'll get out of this phase back to like real artist development. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm definitely with you there. I, I, I've, I know it's like with my own music, I've, I've, I feel like social media is the one place where I, I really struggle with cause it's not totally my thing to like you know scroll on my phone and I, I just have never been into that like culture I guess so it's it's the one area that I wish I was better at but um yeah anyways um, <laughs> yeah. so uh, uh we've also got to talk about uh BTS because working with them has really brought you a crazy amount of success so yeah how did you get started working with them um well I started working with them during COVID as well after Super Lonely happened they were reaching out about doing various projects on Hybe. Um, and that's how I first started knowing people at Hybe, the label um, behind BTS, TXT, et cetera. And, uh, and then Dynamite came about and they asked me to vocal produce it. So I ended up vocal producing Dynamite and it came out and was their first, you know, obviously big English hit. And um, that was just so exciting to be a part of. And I think at that point, given the success of that, they, they, you know, they were, I was definitely in with that camp. So I was in the conversation for pitching for the next song. And with, with Butter, um, it was just, it was, it was crazy because um, it's such a long story how it really happened. But essentially, um, the, my partner now that I work on everything with, Stephen Kirk, he had a song that he had written in like 2019 that had the the production that you hear today of Butter and then the original hook melody and um, Rob Grimaldi, who was signed to 27 Music that my publishing company with Barry had sent me um, the song. And I didn't know Stephen at the time, but um, had sent me this demo and I was just like, oh, this is like perfect. We should work on this. And so we took that and we essentially changed the lyrics to be Butter and all those things and sort of buttoned it up to what it is now. 
sent it to them and they, you know, they fell in love with it and it was just ended up being what it was, you know, what it is today, which is, was such a blessing. And, and obviously like, you know, when you have that type of record, you know, given that again, me and Stephen are partners, for example, it's just like, there's so much that came out of that song besides just the song. It was just like partnership and like other amazing songs and just the relationship with BTS and having, you know, one of the biggest songs in the last 10 years is just like crazy to think about. Yeah, no. And it's it, like you were saying there, it's it hit number one on, on the Billboard Hot 100, which is like such a, an amazing accomplishment because, you know, like there have been all time greats that have never done that. So to be able to to have that, you know, on your resume is just like, it's got to be a real thrill. Well, it was actually number one for 10 weeks. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So it's actually like even cra- crazier because I mean, like it's like, of course, I mean, to answer your question, it was amazing. But like to, to have a song that went number one for 10 weeks, I mean, that's like extra rare. I mean, it's um, it, it was just again, it was all so surreal to some extent but also like not in a weird way you know what I mean because I think that once you like we put so much effort in in like that was the one thing about COVID is that you know obviously like no one was doing anything so I think just the focus and attention that we put into this one baby really paid off mm-hmm. yeah I didn't actually realize it was it was number one for 10 weeks in a row so that and I think like the, in this day and age it's really hard to do that cause, since there's just so much more music now so uh, yeah, that's that's awesome. And then yeah. um, uh, right after that, uh, you got to do uh, another number one song with BTS, and that was Permission to Dance. And I saw that Ed Sheeran was a co-writer on that track. So how did he get involved? Well, so he originally had the song, and but BTS, it was for him. It was for his own project. And so basically, he had sent it to me to write, because I had been writing, doing so much for BTS, to write lyrics more geared for... BTS, which was such a, obviously a compliment that Ed had trusted me with one of his songs. So I essentially just went and rewrote all the lyrics. I mean, we kept obviously the title permission to dance and like a certain few words here and there, but um, essentially just tailored it for them. And then um, Steve Mack and Steven produced the, the song together and sort of brought it more into the BTS world because again, before it was an Ed Sheeran song, um, which was mm-hmm. amazing. And I think what attracted to them, them to the song in the first place, but you know how it is. And that, that's another way, reason back to your other question where other creatives come in together a lot, because again, that ends up happening is like you have one and because connection through social media is so amazing today where you can just have friends all over the world. It's like, you can have like a song that you created, look at what happened with Steven or with Ed. It's like, you might've created that with your own project and then you send it to a friend and they send it to another, and then you end up, there's all these writers that end up on the song because of the way it's been shared and, and just, I don't know, connection in that sense. So. Mm-hmm. If that gives gives you an example why you and you see more than one writer on these songs today, is yeah. basically what I'm yeah, yeah, and um, so Ed did the Ed had the music put together basically for this song. Well, it was originally Ed and Steve Mack, and then they had brought me in for the lyrics and Stephen in for the music to to co-produce with Steve Mack. So yeah. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, it um, yeah I thought it it was like uh, it definitely felt like kind of. Uh, it, it sort of reminded me of of a '70s song uh, in the lyrics, like you know we were talking about Elton John. It's uh, it was sort of like "Don't Go Breaking My Heart" or maybe like "Changes" by David Bowie. That was sort of uh, I, I liked the, I liked the vibe of it for for the that reason. 
Oh yeah, cool. I always loved Permission to Dance too. That was one of my favorites. I just, it's so feel good. It's just like classic sounding. I mean, it kind of reminds you of like a, like Jackson Five too. And you know, mm-hmm. it's like, which um, it's so, it, it, I just love it. I love the core progressions. Like every, I was so excited to work on it at the time. So yeah. yeah. And um, now before we move into uh, the guessing section of the show, uh, I also wanted to bring up uh, another recent project of yours, and you, you'd mentioned it earlier, and that's uh, your podcast, which is called The Green Room Talks. Uh, I checked out a few episodes, and I, I think it has a really interesting format for a podcast. So it would be great if you can share uh, what the show is about and how you sort of put it together. Well, it's, it's essentially about, um, you know, obviously about mental health and just various forms of it. I think, you know, I started, I've always struggled with anxiety and various mental health issues, panic attacks, things like that. But I've always, you know, there, there's a point where you feel ashamed and not really wanting to talk about it. But I think at the breaking point where I really decided to be open about it in sessions and things like that is where I really began to see the songs that were coming out and the beauty and the relationships I was making. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. It's very much like a therapeutic, um, you know, safe space feeling that, that I want to create in the green room where it's like, it's me, the artist and, or whoever the guest is and a therapist. And I think, you know, as I was explaining before, it's like this very much natural conversation that comes up. And in a lot of the episodes that you do watch, there is like some sort of phrase that's used that, in a songwriting room, normally you'd be like, oh, that's the concept. Like, it's perfect for this song. And I think I was trying to, you know, show people that that's how authentic that like songwriting can be, right? Mm -hmm. But also including the mental health aspect. And I think for fans, especially of certain people on the podcast, I think it's interesting and I've I've seen it, you know, because I've done it in various forms. Like we did it on Twitch and YouTube and YouTube Live and, and like Twitch and things like that. Uh, or said Twitch, um, um, Zoom live and things like that. Like there was a lot of different ways we did it in COVID and people were, were on live watching and commenting about how much, you know, it was nice to see their idols um, talk about similar things that they were going through. So I think it's, it's like it, the music industry or the entertainment industry as a whole can be very much smoke and mirrors. So I think that when you really start to see like, oh, wow, this person's not so different than, than me in ways that I, I think that it's it's really amazing to bring people together and really just help it's a it's help the healing process I guess you know and I think if I was as a if I was a kid watching a show like that I was thinking you know like a Mariah Carey for example like if you were to see her talk about the very similar things that you went through as a kid you would you would feel a little bit less ashamed of your own self going through it or feel less bad about you know, having a panic attack at school or something and not feeling like, oh, it's only me going through this, especially when it comes down to your idols. So that's another thing. And I think the therapist is there, you know, it's because I'm not obviously a therapist. So it's like to have someone really there that's a trained, trained in their field and be able to give advice, not only to the guests, but to people watching um, is really cool. And and there's like so many various helplines that we can provide. And, um, and um, like I've partnered with like the Jed Foundation and she is the music, which is obviously, to your point, again, we talked about females in this industry. I think, you know, the that support is really cool after the episode as well, just to have people reach out. And they do. I mean, there's been people that have reached out and really um, seeking seeking help. Maybe have never had therapy before, watched the podcast and, and, and are intrigued by therapy and want to do it. That's another thing. And, and also on the flip side, it really helps to see the songwriting process and 
So there's so many things and I'm, I'm trying to expand it now though. Like I really think that it's not, it started as a music thing for songwriting, but I think it can be really for anyone. Like I, I think that everyone has a story and I think it's interesting to talk about mental health as a whole and make it feel like, you know, destigmatize it as much as possible. And I know that it's, it, it's already come so far from where we were, you know, even 10, 15 years ago where, you know, to, to, to admit that you have any sort of mental health issue was like, I mean, was basically like having some sort of, you know, something on your face. Like it just was so embarrassing. People, it just wasn't accepted. Right. But now I think it's come so far, but I think it has to continue to, to become that way, even in, in things like the workplace. I mean, that could be interesting to go into next because I, you know, for mental health, but also being a woman, I mean, imagine, as a woman having to go to a big meeting and having a panic attack, like telling your boss, Oh, sorry, I can't, I can't attend this meeting because I'm having a panic attack. I mean, that could potentially be a fireable offense. Whereas like, you know, if you had a cold or the flu and you couldn't help but throw up in the bathroom, you're not getting fired for that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, it's just these things that I think is, is healthy to be exposed and, and also just feel a little bit, there's like so much humanity in it, I think. So, yeah. And I, th I think you you hit the nail on the head. Like it, it is, um, you know, I, I, today people are more willing to be open about mental health and, you know, because it, it was a very taboo subject for a long time. And so the more discussions that are had about mental health, I definitely think that, you know, inspires people to, to look for help when they're not feeling good. And, you know, uh, like you were saying about having a therapist, I think that makes uh, your show very interesting and unique because, uh, you know, the fact you have that like expert advice right there on the spot. Um, it, I, I can't say I've seen a show do something like that before. So that's uh, that's a great idea. And uh, I also wanted to ask, um, uh, because I've since I've obviously taken the plunge into podcasting myself, what's been sort of the most eye opening process about podcasting that you've uh, found? Um, I think interesting about eye-opening um i think the the clickbait aspect of it um i think that's that's been interesting for my particular podcast just because i think um you know because it's such a pure like safe space to be able to be able to get some people's attention with what's like with without it being harmful to the guests if that makes mm -hmm. sense because i mean what we're talking about is so um you know it like it's kind of an interesting thing to do because technically the whole reason why the safe space is there is so it remains in that room so if you're actually able to go on a podcast where you're willing to have other people listen to what you're saying which it no longer becomes technically safe it's like you don't want to bring these things out of people and want them to share things that they wouldn't be comfortable to put out there, you know, in another way. So I wouldn't want to expose that in clickbait, if that makes sense. So it's kind of a weird, it's a weird thing because, uh, you know, people are just so, their attention spans so small now. So it's like, you've got to be careful about what you're bringing people in to watching the show without act, like alienating the guests that are, that are on the show as well. So I guess I'm trying to sort of figure that out as I go, but, um, but, you know, it's for me, the podcast is so fun because it's sort of like a, you know, just like a passion project. So I, I don't I, I think it's just nice to be able to see it grow in baby steps. And I'm not really worried for like instant gratification for it. For it. It's just like 
for me, I'm more concerned with like helping people. And if it touches one person, you know, per episode, then that's great. You know, I mean, it's, I, I interviewed Dixie D'Amelio and uh, cause I worked on her project last year and she put it on her, you know, D'Amelio show on Hulu. So that's cool. But I mean, you know, things like that. I mean, you, like it, things will happen naturally. I think the universe sort of points you in the right direction. So. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, so we are now entering the guessing portion of this podcast, okay. for which it gets us in. So inside this, or yeah, I'll explain the rules for you and uh, to any new listeners we may have. Uh, in this bag that I'm holding is a record from my collection. And what I'm going to do is I will give you three clues about that album. And, uh, and then we just play a game of 20 questions to try and figure out what the album is. And uh, if you're stuck, I will give you hints. It's not like a serious competition or anything like that. So no, no pressure or anything. But uh, yeah, Jenna Andrews, are you ready to guess that record? I'm ready. All right. So here are your three clues. This album came out in the 1970s. It's a duet album. And the duo on this record would later have another hit together uh, years after they made this album. Question one. Oh, is it Donny Hathaway or Roberta Flack? Wow. That, you are the first person to ever get the record in the first guess. It was. No! <laughs> yep. I love that! That's yep. so cool. I yeah. mean, I, I would, I would, uh, that's, that's cool. I mean, I love that it had something to do with, with what I grew up on too. So it sounds like me and you are on the same page. Yeah, no, that that was uh, I, I'm very impressed. That was awesome. Um, and <laughs> yeah, so you you mentioned to me bef both before the interview and during that uh, you, Donny Hathaway was one of your favorite artists, and so this was an interesting record for me to kind of dive into because I will admit that I wasn't super familiar with him, uh, you know, uh, before the podcast. Uh, but it's been cool to sort of check out his work from all this. Yeah, it's it's he's. He's just amazing. I feel like his story and, you know, everything about him was just so, I mean, his voice, like the way he sang, I think just really touched my soul in a way that I feel like so many, I don't know how to explain it. Like, I think that every single song he sang, I really believed it, you know, mm -hmm. and I think it's really hard to do that um, as an artist and really captivate the listener in every single song i just really i just i don't know and i think his life story again was just so amazing and i um i just feel like i really feel him he's like genuine therapy listening to his songs so it's like yeah. really amazing yeah yeah and kind of good timing to be talking about him as well since you know we're recording this in december christmas is right around the corner and i know he did uh, this christmas which is probably his most recognizable song to the general public i would say yeah, yeah, 100%. Oh my gosh, I should just play this right now. I'll play it right now after we get <laughs> off. I mean, it's that song, the way he did that song was just, oh, so great. I mean, and like, it's so interesting because I know Chris Brown did a version, um, I don't know when, but he did not remember that he had a, they had a like a movie, I think it was called This Christmas. But anyway, he sang it. And I think his version was based off of the Donny Hathaway version because all the runs and all the stuff that Donny does. I mean, obviously, there's so many versions, but I, I mean, obviously, my favorites. Donnie's, yeah. So. Yeah. 
and and before we continue the discussion, I'll uh, I'll share some facts about the uh, the album for those who may be unfamiliar with it. Uh, Roberta Flack and Donny Hathaway is a duet album by Roberta Flack and Donny Hathaway. Um, released in April 1972, the idea of a collaboration between the two artists was put together by Atlantic Records head honcho Jerry Wexler who thought that a duet album would uh, help both of them sort of reach more success as they hadn't really found that, uh, that major commercial success to that point. And it ended up being the right call as the album went gold and produced the top five hit, uh, Where Is The Love? Um, and uh, yeah, so I guess um, the one that, going back to kind of just talking about Donnie specifically, uh, reading about him, it, it was interesting because... He's definitely got, you know, like that kind of incredible vocal talent and had sort of all the tools to be successful. But because he died quite young in 1979, uh, I feel like he's sort of been forgotten about compared to a lot of uh, the other singers from that era. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, I think so. I mean, but you'd be surprised. I mean, I don't know, because I feel like I live a lot in my like my world and my, you know, my music taste. And I feel like when I bring up Donny Hathaway, for the most part, people do know who that is. I mean, I think um, if they don't, then I mean, okay, put it this way. If you're if you're into soul music or R&B or, or jazz or any of those kind of that style of music, you're going to know Donny Hathaway. Mm -hmm. So I think that it really depends on like, if you're just like a hyper pop person and, you know, like, of course, maybe you wouldn't have known Donny. Well, I mean, I guess back then you would have, but like, you know, you wouldn't maybe be as interested to to know, like, for example, like, Kim Burrell is one of the best R&B singers ever. And, and a lot of people in pop that don't really listen to R&B wouldn't know Kim Burrell, but she's an icon, an absolute goat in, in R&B. So it's kind of like, it's all relative in that sense. Definitely. Yeah. And I, I probably said that because, you know, of course I'm like a rock and roll guy, but I, I mean, I, I do try and, you know, cause I do like soul and, and uh, a lot of, of this type of music, but I, I guess I'm sort of more, familiar with like the Marvin Gaye's and the, the people that, you know, really had a lot of success crossing over into the pop world. Um, right. I get that. Yeah. And um, this, this album with Roberta Flack was actually a good one for me to take a look at because it did have some songs I'm very familiar with. And one of the, one of the tracks they did a cover of was uh, you've got a friend, which of course was written by Carol King and uh, definitely made famous by James Taylor, uh, who, his version went to number one on the charts, but uh, you know, Roberta and Donnie's version was great. Cause I, I feel like it was sort of just taking the, the song as a whole, but giving it sort of a, you know, soul, maybe even a gospel flavor to it. And I think it shows like how uh, powerful that song is and how durable it is because it, you know, of course it sort of started off as like this folk pop song and then Roberta and Donnie could, could really do the arrangement their way and, and still have it sound great. No, exactly. I mean, that's, that's, um, that's always a true testament for a song. If you can put it in any genre and have it sound like a great song, right? So. Mm -hmm. And it was also a, another well-known cover they do was, uh, and this was kind of the opposite where they really changed it was uh, you've lost that loving feeling, which was originally done by the righteous brothers. And that uh, righteous brothers version of course is very famous for, it was produced by Phil Spector. So it's like, probably one of the best examples of Phil's wall of sound production style, but 
Roberta and Donnie's version is like completely different. Like they changed the the melody feels different and everything like that. It was uh, that was an interesting one. And it's always interesting when you find covers like that, where they really uh, do it differently than the original. Yeah, no, totally. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, the other thing, uh, the other sort of big song from this record was Where Is The Love? Uh, and as I mentioned, it reached number five and uh, number five on, on the Billboard Hot 100. And it uh, it was interesting because I then found out that they had another hit together, which was an even bigger hit in 1978. And uh, the song was called The Closer I Get to You, which hit number two on the charts. And um, that was uh, interesting to kind of see the timing of that song because it was it came out sort of a year before. Uh, Donnie passed away and it's kind of too bad that he had this big hit right before right before he passed away there I know what, wasn't so... able to sort of build on that yeah I know it's I, it's crazy so uh, we have reached the end of another episode of Guess That Record. I want to thank uh, Jenna Andrews for taking the time to come on the podcast. Like I said at the beginning, I'm a musician myself, and I'm still working my way up and trying to get my foot in the door. So to speak with someone from Calgary who's doing all these incredible things in music is a real honor, and I'm very thankful to get the chance to speak with you. Okay, great. I, I love this. This is amazing. Yeah. And thanks to you, the listeners, for tuning in. We're getting the chance to have some incredible people on the podcast, and it wouldn't be happening without you listening to each episode, so it means a lot. Make sure to leave a five-star review wherever you listen, and tell your friends to check us out. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel to see the video versions of our episodes, and you can follow us on Instagram at Guess That Record. Remember to keep rocking, and we'll see you on the next episode of Guess That Record. <laughs> <laughs>